So at this time, I would invite you, if you have your copies of the Word of God, to uh, turn in your Bibles to Galatians again, Galatians chapter 4 this morning. And I'm going to read verses 8 through 11 to get us started. Paul writes, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Most of us are familiar with the uh, Oxford professor, C.S. Lewis. He was a famed Christian apologist who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia for um, those who like the uh, children's books and then also wrote the great work Mere Christianity, among others. One of the earliest and lesser-known books that I stumbled across is a book called The Pilgrim's Regress, which is taken from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. But this is Lewis's sort of Oxford scholarly journey to come to grips with the Christian faith. It's allegorical, and he uses allegory and pictures to describe his different intellectual and spiritual pursuits, things that used to ensnare him like philosophies that didn't seem to jive with the Bible, things like intellectualism or even religious legalism and those kinds of experiments were things he had to work through to come clear in terms of his own faith. He had been disillusioned by hypocritical worship and he wrote this in a response to it. The lead uh, character in it is a man named John, and he's fleeing his homeland called Puritania. And Puritania is the the homeland that that is kind of his religious bondage that he's fleeing from, and he's fleeing to a vision of an island that is where he will be free and where he will unshackle himself from hypocrisy. The hypocritical worship in Puritania was represented by the landlord and the stewards who wore many masks. And John Island, John's Island represents the freedom therein from that. The journey begins where John was freeing himself from a religious ensnarement called legalism. And he was freeing himself from the steward and the landlord. And so this, as the scene picks up, listen as I read. The steward then took down from a peg... At his home, a big card with small print all over it. And it said, here is a list of all the things the landlord says you must do. You better look at it. So John took the card, but half the rules seemed to forbid things he had never heard of. And the other half forbade things he was doing every day and could not imagine not doing. And the number of the rules was so enormous that he felt he could never remember all of them. I hope, said the steward, that you have not already broken any of these rules. Sound familiar? This is the legalistic version of supposed Christianity. A bunch of 
rules. And it's suffocating. Legalism is suffocating. It's soul killing. It's been that way since the beginning of the church, and it's that way even today. A philosopher named Jean-Jacques Rousseau of the 1700s, he got it a little bit right, saying, quote, man is born free, and everywhere he is in chains. The Bible would round this out saying, man thinks he's born free, though everywhere he is in chains, the chains of our sins. Our sin problem cannot be solved by a bunch of rules to be followed. We will fail every time. The gospel, though, is the golden key that unlocks us from these shackles. And we have to go back to the golden key of the gospel. Paul does, and in our verses 8 through 11, he describes the gospel beautifully in terms of, listen, knowing God. But he doesn't stop there. It's knowing God, and listen, being known by God. Knowing God and being known by God. Look at the beginning of verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. It's an amazing phrase. I remember when I first came into the faith reading that phrase and thinking this is an interesting way for Paul to put things. The pursuit of knowing God is also put in the context of the phrase that God first knew us. What's he saying here? He's saying in essence that Being saved is the pursuit to know God, but we know God because he first knew us. We know the phrase in 1 John 4, 9, we love because he first loved us. This is simply saying, listen, God made the first move. He made the first move. He wanted to know you, and that's why you today know him. You're not earning You're standing with God. You're not keeping your right standing with God through a list of do's and don'ts. If it was up to you or me to keep ourselves in right standing with God, guess what would happen? We would bomb every day, every hour, every minute. We would be lost. We would be perilously lost and filled with hopelessness. And some of you, as Christian believers, men and women, boys and girls, who are in the faith, have stumbled into the temptations of legalism, trying to keep yourself right with God through performance or a performance mindset, and you find yourself utterly discouraged. And perhaps our text would even say, dangerously in peril, spiritually. And I want the gospel to be that which unlocks you this morning. It all begins with knowing God because God, through his sovereign grace and mercy, chose to first know you. And I want to talk about that just a little bit before we dig into the text back at verse 8. What does it mean that God knows us? Well, he knows us because he chose us. Verse 5, John fifteen sixteen. you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. John six forty four. no one comes to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Now, the case I'm trying to make here is not just in terms of chronology. Paul's not just talking in, in terms of the fact that you know him because God made the first move. That's all true. And he does say that. But more importantly, knowing God or knowing that God knows you is all about intimacy. God loves you. 
because he knew you before you were born and decided to love you before you were born. He decided to set his eyes and heart of affection upon you and know you personally and intimately as someone who is fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are his works. You know that from the psalmist. Paul's speaking of intimacy. It harkens back to the Hebrew word yada. The Greek word epignosis would find its roots in yada. And yada means knowing someone in the most intimate ways. Genesis 4.1, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. Amos 3.2, this is the intimacy and intimate love that God had for and has for the nation of Israel. You alone have I known of all the families of the earth. Jeremiah, his testimony is one of being known before called as a prophet. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and appointed you a prophet. It's Paul's testimony as well. In Galatians 1.15 and 16, we studied this earlier. When he who had set me apart before I was born and who had called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul's life was filled with choices. We remember that, right? He was the chief of, I'm going to change it. He was the chief of legalists, right? He was the Pharisee of the Pharisees before he was saved. And all of those choices were bound up in Paul's heart and in his will doing that. But God knew him before all that was going to happen. God loved him before all that was going to happen. God set him apart even in his mother's womb to be saved and to be called as an apostle one day. That's knowledge that's incomprehensibly powerful for us. God knew you were going to be here today. God knew you were going to be in Alaska today. God knows your life every day. God knew who you were as a little child. God knew who you were as a teenager. He knew when you would come to faith in Christ, and he knows you now personally and intimately. This is the foundation for the gospel. The gospel is not academic. It is. It's not just about learning theology, though it is doctrine and theology. The gospel is the good news that Jesus knows and loves you. That's what Paul is saying. When you think of the word foreknowledge, a lot of times people will take that right into the dorm room of a Christian college and debate, what does it mean that God foreknew you? Romans eight twenty eight. God is working all things together for the good. It's a hallmark verse for the sovereignty of God, right? God is working all circumstances for the good, for your Christ-likeness. But a lot of times people miss the next verse, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. What is foreknowledge? A lot of theology classes will teach that foreknowledge is God looking in a crystal ball down the corridors of time, seeing that you would choose him. And so then, based on your choice of him, he then chooses you. It doesn't work that way. Foreknowledge, understood in the context of all the verses I've just quoted to you, is God's intimate and personal knowledge of you before you were even made or born. God knew and loved you. You, Romans 8, 28 and 29 shouldn't be some unsolvable debate as much as a comfort to us to know that God loves and knows you. Otherwise, we're in control. We're controlling God's decision and we know better than that. God chose you and loved you because he did. 
And so the question isn't, how can we figure out God's sovereignty and human responsibility? We're never going to totally figure that out. The question is, how, listen, how could God choose someone like me and love me in this way at all? We're undeserved sinners saved by grace. J.I. Packer in his profound book, Knowing God, said, What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlines it, the fact that he knows me. I'm graven on the palm of his hand. I am never out of his mind. He knows me as a friend. He loves me, and there's no moment when his eye is off of me, of his attention distracted from me. No moment, therefore, when his care falters. It's about knowing God. It's our highest privilege to know God. There's nothing greater than knowing God and knowing that God loves me and you. Jeremiah 9, 23, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. We know God. We get to know God, the sovereign ruler of everything. We get to know him personally and walk with him. This is our high privilege. This is the centerpiece of Paul's writings in verses 9 through 11. This is the foundation for Paul's exhortation. And he gives a very, very severe one here. He's giving a warning, much like a parent who's giving a very severe warning regarding the relationship that he has with his son or daughter. These are very, very striking words pastorally as an exhortation and as a spiritual warning to these believers in the region of Galatia. Asia Minor. These believers were on the cusp of spiritual defection. They were wanting to spiritually defect, and they were doing it through a passive adherence to the law, where they were being wooed in by false teachers and Judaizers to say, listen, for you to be right with God, you need to do this or that. Anybody that says, do this and live, is not giving you the gospel. Whether you are in a church, or whether you're in the Roman Catholic Church, or whether you're in a 1950s fundamentalist version of of some sort of high legalism church, I don't care. Anybody that says, do this and you will live spiritually, this will make you right with God, is not giving the gospel. So Paul gives, listen, reasons not to revert back to a former life of enslavement to sin. That's what they were tempted to do, reverting back to a former life of enslavement to sin. So the reason number one is verse eight. This kind of enslavement is idolatry. It's idolatry. Look at verse eight. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature, are not gods. The church was treating certain things like gods, like idols. And he's saying you were, you used to have a life where you were enslaved to worshiping things that aren't real. Look at verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, and stop there. So 
Verse 8, formerly you were doing this when you didn't know God, but now you've come to know God. So there's a pre-knowing God, life of enslavement, and then there is a post-life where you are a believer who knows God with new life. Paul's speaking in terms of their testimony. When they didn't know God and now that they do know God. And the Greco-Roman culture that these Christians were in, it was filled with man-made idols, physical idols, like we see in different religions around the world. Idolatry, physical idols, things that the Bible condemns that are empty and fake and lifeless, that don't have real ears or eyes. They're not real. The demons behind the idols are real, but the physical idols are not real gods. They aren't. There's no such thing. Galatian culture in Lystra, Derby, and Lyconia in Acts 14 portrays them as idol worshipers. You remember Paul and Barnabas had established these churches and then they're coming back through this region in Acts 14. It's an interesting story. They come across a man and they're they're in the midst of these new Christians as well. And they're trying to reach these churches. But just in the crowds of unbelievers, there's a cripple who was a cripple from birth. And they healed him. God did through them. And they were immediately declared to be gods. Acts 14.11 says that the crowd said, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas is Zeus and Paul is Hermes. And so they wanted to worship them and they wanted to give them offerings. And Paul and Barnabas shut this down. This kind of paganism, this kind of idolatry isn't just for back then though. And I want to challenge you. This kind of idolatry is for us today. It's where we are tempted to worship ourselves, to worship our own lust. That's the context of verse 8. Worshiping things that aren't real gods, things that won't really satisfy. Verse 9, it talks about things that are worthless elementary principles of life. This is talking about the, the false spiritualities, the false satisfactions that are offered to us to bow down and worship that need to be rejected. Romans 1, therefore God gave them up to their lusts. This is verse 24, the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their own bodies among themselves. This is what people will do. It says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. You say, how does this look? What is this like? Well, false teachers will tell you that through even self-mutilization, you'll find satisfaction. Whether people are hurting themselves through drugs and alcohol or deprivation, people do all kinds of things to themselves externally or aesthetically or physically to try to find peace, to try to find help, to try to escape this world and find some other spiritual way and mechanism to try to feel better. And this is that kind of idolatry whether modern or whether 500 years before Christ. Remember Elijah on Mount Carmel was confronting the prophets of Baal? Elijah said, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. This is 1 Kings 18, verse 25. For you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. They said, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered and they limped around the altar that they had made. This is one of my favorite stories from the Old Testament. 
And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. Pause. And he is on a journey, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom and sore with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved until the time of the offering of oblation. And you say, that's Old Testament. But I'm sorry, look at the raves today. Better yet, don't look at those. Don't go there. But where people go into frenzies and euphoric all kinds of immoralities to try to escape this world and the pain of this world, to try to find their own personal peace in heaven through sensuality. This is that version of pagan idolatry. There was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. The point is that the, the, the false worship is real, but those gods are not real. The demons are real, but they're not gods. False teachers, Philippians 3.2, they say, mutilate the flesh. Go to these extremes. But it's wrong and it, it's empty. That's my second point. Enslavement like this is empty. This is what Paul is building on in verse 9. But now, that was your former way of life, but now you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God. Here's the question. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. How can you want to even turn back to that? Turning back. The word epistrepho is the Greek word for repentance. It's the idea of a false repentance. You're right with God and suddenly you're going the right direction for Christ and you do a 180 and you go the wrong direction away from Christ. It's the opposite of what the Thessalonians did when they got saved. Paul said how you turned, that's that word, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That in reverse is what these believers were being tempted to do. They were having a sinful deja vu. Does that sound familiar? Where suddenly, like the Egyptians, you say, man, life is hard. I want to go back to Egypt. I want to go back there where at least we were fed. Put me back in the stocks. Put me back under the slave's whip. Put me back in the situation that was unthinkably horrible because that seems so much better than this life that I have in front of me. It's like having spiritual amnesia, forgetting who Christ is, forgetting that your sins are forgiven, forgetting the gospel altogether. This is the temptation. Someone reverts in this way. Here's the question that you might be thinking and pondering at this point. Are they a Christian at all? And can someone revert at this level back into this former manner of life who claims Christ and still be affirmed as a Christian? Obviously, I'm not believing in the false doctrine of being able to lose your salvation. You can't lose your salvation once you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. But can someone um, revert back to this former behavior and do so temporarily and come back to the faith? Absolutely. Absolutely. There are people who backslide, who go backwards, who revert back into their former manner of life, who act like unbelievers, and they, they're still believers. There was David who sinned with Bathsheba, David who called the troops back so Uriah would be killed. There's all kinds of 
stories of people who sin all through the Bible and all through our experiences. And we pray for those people. We pray for people that are loved ones who've made professions of faith, who we say, we know they were Christians, but they're acting so horribly now. How could they really have been Christians at all in the first place? Well, how do we test this? Matthew 18 gives us some clear tracks to do that. We confront people. We go to them. We bring friends and say, we're witnesses here. We're calling you as a brother. And if they repent, guess what? The Bible says you have what? One, your brother. That's a brother in Christ. That straying Christian, that straying sheep is a genuine Christian. On the other hand, if a person is confronted and confronted and brought into accountability, even church-wide accountability where you're trying to call somebody back who's a straying sheep and they won't come back and they harden up, what does the Bible say you're to do at that point? You're to treat them as what? An unbeliever. What does that mean? That simply means that we at that point have no confidence as to where that person is spiritually, so we can't treat that person who's living in a hard-hearted state of unrepentance as a believer. That person does not now have the assurance of their salvation, and the church shouldn't give that person a false assurance. That's the worst thing we can do for somebody who needs to examine themselves to see if they're really a Christian, to turn from their sins, to turn from their idols, to turn from things that are weak and worthless, things that do not redeem, things that do not build up and will not save. They need to see that the God of this world, Satan himself, does not satisfy, but he steals, kills, and destroys. He dampens, he darkens, he strikes deep. And that that person needs to, to wake up like the prodigal son and say, I don't want to eat the swine pods. I want to go back to my father. Proverbs twenty six eleven warns, of a person becoming like a fool that is like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Second, Peter picks up on that Old Testament passage specifically, talking about how false teachers come into the church, they speak loud, boast of folly, they entice sensual passions, they're dangling idols for people out in front of them. In the name of Christ, they say, come, do these things. It's like me and youth group being raised in uh, the youth department that was so hip and so cool that all the cool crowd led me astray for a while. That's the kind of sensual passions that sometimes people within the church offer people. It's the flesh, those who are barely escaping from, their, uh, from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. And whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Now listen, for if they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. And the last state has become worse than the first This idea of one demon being cast out, nothing is put in place, that person's vulnerable, seven come to abide and take over. The person's heart is even harder than before. We're all trying to not be Judas Iscariot, being exposed to so much light, so much truth, so much Christ, and embracing him superficially to our own detriment and condemnation. That's the scary part of the gospel. The more light that you're exposed to, the more you're accountable to. The more of Christ you have, the more of Christ you are accountable to love and worship. And if you reject him and walk away in a hardened state, you'll be 
more hardened than ever before. You'll become worse for them than the worst. As Jesus said of Judas, it would have been better had he not been born. Verse 21, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Verse 22, what the true proverb says happened to them, the dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. John Stott said the prodigal son confessed to his father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as your slave. This by contrast, the Galatians say, quote, you've made me your son, but I would rather be a slave to sin. Remember last week's sermon from slave from enslavement to sonship, from a slave to a son. This is the son saying, you know what? I'd rather be a slave. And Stott says wisely, the one thing, uh, It's one thing to say, I don't deserve salvation. It's quite another thing to say, I don't desire salvation anymore. This is being weak and worldly. I was reading uh, St. Augustine. He was the Bishop of Hippo in North Africa. And some of you may not know his testimony. He was a teenager who was a rebellious teenager who left the church. And he took a mistress for 17 years and had a son with her. And after being saved... He was left with a fight on his hands, as some of you will quickly resonate. The fight against your flesh because of what you did prior to being saved is on, and it's on probably for the rest of your life. He fought sensual temptations. And he put, this, put it this way in his confessions. He said, my old attachments plucked my, at my garment of flesh and whispered, are you going to dismiss us? From this moment, we shall never be with you again forever and ever. From this moment, we shall never be allowed to do this thing or that or forever. In my state of indecision, they kept me from tearing myself away, from shaking myself free of them and leaping across the barrier to the other side where you are calling me to be. Habit was too strong for me when it asked, do you think you can live without these things? This is the elementary principles of the world, the world, the flesh, the devil, the things that ensnare us. And Satan wants us to say, I am ruled by none of them. None of these things bother me anymore. I'm super Christian. I'm good with my family, with my career and money and religious image. And all of this sort of pride and hubris will leave you empty because you will be not worshiping the Lord who satisfied, but these things as idols, which are really self-worship. Well, thirdly, the third reason not to defect spiritually and not to revert back to enslavement to sin is the enslavement is pagan. Enslavement is pagan. It's turning back to verse 9 again, the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. And the version of that is found in verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. Listen, what's so surprising about this text is the subtlety of paganism that's represented here. For these Christians, paganism wasn't reverting back to a Greco-Roman idolatrous worship style. They weren't going on a pilgrimage to the Greek pantheon. 
to worship those gods. Paganism for them was found in religion, in a reverting back to Old Testament law. The Judaizers were saying to these Gentile Christians, listen, if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to be right with God, you have to observe special days. You have to observe special festivals. You've got to observe special years. You have to go back into the Old Testament law in this way for you to be affirmed spiritually. This is talking about the religious calendar. And you say, how boring is that? People do it all the time in the church. They revert to all kinds of traditions to try to feel right with God. One of the nouveau things in the younger culture today is people reverting back to liturgy and liturgical methods of spirituality. Now, I'm not against some level of liturgy, and liturgy is, you know, like what the Bible says in Romans 14, 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. It's a choice of preference and style, and I understand that. But as soon as liturgy and the experience of liturgy you know, the incense and the practices and bowing and standing and reciting things. As soon as that is elevated to a level of true Christian experience, where you need that to know God, and without that, you're not right with God. When that starts to play in your mind, you're defecting from the gospel. And that's what a lot of young people are doing. They're defecting from the gospel. And some of them aren't genuinely Christians in the first place, so their defection is eternal damnation. They'll leave Christian spirituality. They'll leave the gospel, which is knowing Christ personally, knowing Christ intimately, knowing that Christ knows you personally, and they'll go into religious form and functionality to try to make themselves right with God through that, through experiences. I blame some of this on the church that got so programmatized, it got so slick with dog and pony shows where it became like going to a mall instead of going to a community that people basically threw up over the church and said, I want to go somewhere that gives me true authenticity, a place that makes me feel spiritual aesthetically. And they trade one sham for another, if indeed the church they go to is a sham. Now, I'm not saying that all liturgy is wrong. We do things liturgically here. We have some levels of liturgy. You just have to not equate liturgy to true Christian spirituality. I'm talking about, if you talk about a day being special, what are we going to do next Sunday? Next Sunday, we are going to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to remember his birth, and we call that Christmas Eve. Is that wrong? Well, if we elevated that day in a sense of being right with God, yes, that would be wrong to do something like that. But again, Romans 14 gives us the freedom to celebrate certain things on certain days, just like Easter, just like celebrating the resurrection of Christ. There's nothing wrong with that church tradition. But if you elevate that church tradition as a means to make you right with God, that's wrong. You say, well, who does that? Well, how many Christians do you know are supposed Christians who go to church on Christmas and Easter for their absolution, right? I mean, that's not Christianity. We have to be careful with that. 
What's surprising again is how subtle this temptation is. It's literal days and months from the Jewish calendar represented from Scripture that Paul is calling pagan idolatry. The application is things that are not by nature gods, verse 8, the elementary principles, the application is observing days and months and seasons and years in terms of paganism. Thomas Schreiner, the great theologian, said their attraction to Judaism is equal to paganism. Warren Wiersbe said this is dropping out of the school of grace and enrolling in the kindergarten of the law. Satan's an angel of light and he wants to be subtle. And he wants you to basically do something and live. Instead of being someone who God has made to live, right? God has transformed you. So religion doesn't save. Religion actually will enslave, point four, and it will jeopardize the soul. It will jeopardize the soul. Look at verse 11. Paul says, I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. This is parental disappointment. This is good kind of pressure. From a parent saying, I'm concerned about you. This is Paul looking at the churches saying, listen, I've been gone for a little while. And suddenly you're being wooed into law keeping as a form of spirituality. Traditions as a form of thinking you are right with God. I am concerned with the state of your soul. I'm so concerned that my labor, labor there, kapiao, my exertion to the point of exhaustion with Barnabas where we won you to Christ, where we have cycled back through and visited you and loved you, where we have done so to strengthen you. I'm concerned that you could find yourself being a sham. Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas, they went through strengthening, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations... You will enter the kingdom of God. He was fearing that all of this work could come to mean nothing. The concern is simply this, that they persevere to the end. The doctrine of perseverance is throughout Scripture. And it's a good one to learn. A lot of people shy away from it and don't embrace it because they think it sounds like losing your salvation, but it does not. The Bible says, he who continues to the end will be saved. You know what that means? True believers run the marathon race all the way to the finish line. And they vindicate their realness, their real spirituality, by being a runner who does not quit. That's why Paul said, I buffet my body. I box my body in sanctification. He's fighting the good fight of faith so that at the end of the race, he will not be disqualified. He didn't want to wake up one day and be a sham himself. Christianity is finishing the race set before us. It's not keeping ourselves saved. It's not making ourselves saved. It doesn't mean we can lose our salvation. It just means true Christians repent of their sins. They fall away sometimes, sometimes egregiously and horribly, and sometimes sometimes for seasons of time that we can't imagine that they could be saved in the first place if they're spiraling in indecision and doubt and, and backsliding. But God brings them back in the end. And 
God uses exhortations like these. This is why we come to church. This is what Paul is doing. He's exhorting believers to examine themselves, to say, whoa, wait a minute. Your labor was real and it wasn't in vain. He wants them to have a wake-up call. Remember, they were believers. Chapter 1, Paul was addressing them as brothers. Verse 4, saying Christ gave himself for their sins to deliver he, both Paul and them, from the present evil age. He's affirmed them as believers. But then if you look at the balance here in the warning in Galatians 5, if your eyes will just drop down to the beginning of that chapter, we're not going to open this up. But listen, for freedom Christ has set us free. That's an affirmation. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go into legalism. Verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision as, again, as a entrance for being saved, if that's what you believe, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You, have the, you don't have the gospel. Verse 3, I testify again to every man, he who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Hey, if you're going to try to keep the whole law to be saved or any part of the law to be saved, you're accountable to all of it. The point is you can't do that. That's not the gospel. Verse 4, you've severed, you are severed from Christ. Someone who ultimately gives over to that false gospel is not truly a believer. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. It's apostasy. It's apostasy. Again, we're not going to open that up until a couple weeks. That'll be fun. But, um, but it is a warning. It is a warning. Anyone who's relying on asceticism or experientialism or ritualism for their salvation is really worshiping themselves and not worshiping Christ. They're knowing themselves and their problems, but they're not worshiping Christ who knows them. They've relinquished the golden key of the gospel. Chrysostom, the early church father, nicknamed Golden Throat, he captured Paul's tone here and he said this, in verse 11 he's responding to it, he says, this is as much to say the wreck has not happened, but I see the storm big with it. So I am in fear, yet not in despair. Let's end where we began um, again with C.S. Lewis just for fun. His allegorical work that's better known on satanic temptation is the what? The screw tape letters. You've heard of that. An allegory, it pictures a demon discipling a demon, Uncle Screwtape discipling his mentee Wormwood to go after Christians and cause them to stumble. And this is one section from that. It was correspondence. So Uncle Screwtape is writing um, Wormwood, and he says, In a week or two, you'll be making him, this is the vulnerable believer, you'll be making him doubt whether the first days of his Christianity were not perhaps a little excessive. Talk to him about moderation in all things. If you can at once get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all. And more amusing, your affectionate uncle screw tape. What's the temptation? The temptation is not to take passages like these seriously. This is a warning to not trust yourself, to not trust the world, the flesh, and the devil to satisfy. It's a warning to not be lulled to sleep into a moderate religion. But to move into true Christian spirituality is to know God. And listen, 
to know that he knows you. If we just base our Christian security on how well we know God, that can be equally horrifying. My challenge to you and the challenge of Scripture is to remember that you know God. And you know God because he first knew you. And his knowledge of you is filled with love and the security and grace of the gospel in which you stand.